The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, everyone, to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Each guest on our previous programs has emphasized a need to build resources in order to lift women's sport to the prominence that it deserves. So our guests today have built careers around both the gaining of resources for valuable projects and also moving more women to the business and development side of sport. So on behalf of all of our listeners, I'm welcoming Tootie Scott, Kim Kinney, and Ernestine Miller to our program today. Uh, Typically, we begin with some introductions, and so I'm going to go to each of our guests with some tell-us-about-yourself questions. Um, so, Tootie, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you. Because our listeners might not know you and your work, I'm just going to start by asking um, how you got here right, here right here and right now. Um, where did you grow up? Were you involved with sports and with whom, neighborhood or siblings or what? Uh, did your, what was your family view towards sports for girls? Oh, thank you, Carol. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, I grew up in small town New Hampshire on a farm, and I didn't realize until I was an exercise science major at Ithaca College that uh, my mom had done all the right things uh, to support me as an athlete. You know, we know the research shows that girls are more likely to play sports if their parents do, and there was my mom out teaching everyone in the town swimming lessons all summer and, you know, teaching us how to swim and going cross-country skiing with us. Uh, she also, you know, exposed us to a lot of sports. We had tetherball, we were biking, and eventually there was a basketball hoop put up in the barn where all the animals were on the farm, and I, I lived out there. Basketball was my passion, but, but she really helped us all of us find our passion, and, and we know that if a girl doesn't play sports by the age of 10, she's unlikely to still be active, you know, by 21. Um, and third, you know, we didn't have resources. I couldn't be on a travel team. I picked enough strawberries to go to the Dave Cowens camp and, you know, won the most <laughs> desire to play award. Not the best player, not the most improved, but I had a lot of desire, and, and I worked hard. I was a gym rat. But, you know, we didn't have resources to be on a travel team, which actually was kind of good because then I – I played softball and cross country and I, you know, I didn't specialize, right. Which is, as we know, the repetitive activity of specialization in young kids isn't, isn't so great for our bodies. Right. But I think the most important thing, you know, I was told by my mother and she did this with all four of the girls in the family is, is she really just said, yes, she can. And this was in the seventies where culture might not have supported um, girls being bold and confident and resourceful and, you know, taking action like all of us did. Um, my action was obviously basketball and being a point guard uh, was my sort of perfect comportment for me. 
Um, so telling all of us that, yes, we could, and instilling confidence in us. And ultimately, that, that wove off with the coaches and teachers that I had through my life, uh, mentors who, who really supported me as a, as a feisty tomboy, um, you know, and as the class clown, mostly spirited. And I, I just brought all that energy uh, into, the, into my work life and into the work I get to do today. But I'm really grateful for her and, and all the coaches and teachers who, who really didn't question, you know, who I was or what I wanted to do in the world. Well, I think everybody, all of us can say amen to, to <laughs> all that. Um, Kim, let me go to you now. Please tell us about your early years and influences. Sounds like Tootie was sort of on the farm. I don't know if you were in a farm or an urban area, but uh, what were the points along the way that you chose to play sports or maybe chose not to? Hi, Carol and Tootie and Ernestine. Thank you so much for having me join you today. I think I'm just going to riff off Tootie's comment that girls are more likely to play sports if their parents do because my parents did not play sports. Um, We were big sports fans, and as I think about it, traditional male sports, football, baseball, and basketball, because my father is an avid sports fan. But I grew up in Pleasanton, California, uh, in uh, North Bay, about 35 miles east of San Francisco, and it, I believe it is still known as Soccer Town USA. And so I did play soccer, and I think more so because my friends were doing it. Um, my parents were never people who said we couldn't, um, and they allowed us to do whatever we wanted to, but I dabbled in soccer here and there, and then by the age of 13, no longer played sports. Now I'm a yoga person, I am a workout person, but no team sports. And I'm lamenting that now that I'm talking about it out loud. I wish I would have had that more of an experience. Do you have any sense that that was a conscious, very conscious, planned decision, Kim, or was it just sort of circumstance? It didn't seem like there was any reason much to go on with the sports that you had been in, soccer, for example. You know, I do recall hearing, uh, especially from my friends who participated in sports all throughout high school, and a few went on to play in college, that there was really no career there for them. I remember that message, uh, you know, whether it was stated or implied. But I think also my interests were shifting. I wasn't seeing myself in sports as much as my other friends were. So I kind of drifted into something that was more of an individual pursuit for health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very good. Um, Ernestine, if I'm not mistaken, you had a bit of international influence in your growing up. So tell us about your family and how each of them influenced you toward or away from sport. Well, Carol, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I guess being a native Washingtonian, the... Um, the beauty of being raised with neighbors that came from all over the world, attached to embassies and and politics and anything that was related to the United States government were mostly my neighbors. So the international influence really came from my neighbors not having opportunity to live in any foreign country. But my interest in sport, I just don't remember when I did not have an interest in sport. And I was really a little girl on the playgrounds and schoolyards and any place I could find a ball and somebody to play with me, that's where I would be. 
My parents were enormously, enormously supportive, but my father was an historian, could not tell me one ball from the next. My mother grew up in New York City, played basketball, but really I always thought as a little girl, where did this come from? Because I would play football with the boys, I would play every single sport from season to season to season in grade school, in junior high school, in high school, and I loved them all. I never really had a favorite. I loved them all, and I really kind of had the same group of girls that went through junior high school and high school, and we were on the same team. If there was a city championship in that sport, we won it. And the greatest influence, as I think back, was my eighth-grade coach in volleyball who made me not have trepidation about beating the boys if an opportunity came in any given sport. But way before, I think, Nike ever coined the phrase, just do it, my wonderful coach said, just do it. And do not worry about what anybody's thinking, what anybody might be saying to you. Just if you love it, you do it. And I certainly have loved it. I continue to love it. I don't play very much today. I play when I can. But the passion is still there. And I can tell you, watching these Olympics, my heart is in it because I can see and know the training these amazing athletes have gone through and the sacrifices that their families and they have made. So it's all very inspirational, but to me it has been, I'm, I'm just grateful. Whatever influences I had that I have played sports in my life and I continue to love sports. And we're all lucky that the three of you are where you are with sport today. Um, Ernestine, how about you keep going? Let's take this uh, a little bit um, to a little bit later in your lives, uh, your uh, college age, um, young adulthood, uh, a lot of times family and work uh, comes to intercede in uh, women's involvement with sport in that period. So, uh, Ernestine, keep talking. What about the early years with your family and work? Was well, sport I was still a there? teacher in Washington, D.C. I started out in actually in Maryland teaching Head Start. I went to the University of Maryland. Um, Little before Title IX, and I can say this now, it took me a long time, and here we go again with confidence and not having trepidation of, or hesitation of, of, of tooting your own horn. But today, if the opportunity was there, I think I would be an athlete that was recruited. The opportunity did not exist for me. I went on to the University of Maryland. I played recreational sports, and that was it. Um, I continued when I was getting an advanced degree um, at American University, and I did win a tennis tournament that was sponsored by the university. But it was um, it was just an opportunity to keep going and playing and not quitting and finding what I could find to really continue with my interests. And I think the great thing about encouraging young women today um, in any sport, tennis in particular, let's just say, is a kind of, I'd like to call it a cradle-to-grave sport. You can play it your whole life. But any sport, um, and encouraging young women and encouraging anyone, I don't think it's ever too late. And I, I say that to my friends who say they never had the influence of, of playing at a, at a, in, in their childhood. Um, it's never too late. And, and I really believe that. And I, and I do think the advantages of playing sport, if you can do it, you don't have to be a, an, an elite athlete. 
you just do it for the enjoyment of it, for the socialization of it, and for really the um, self-challenge that, that comes with taking up a sport and not getting discouraged. I think that's one of the things that's kind of a life lesson uh, that sports teaches anyone is you prepare to win, you don't always win, but you come back and you win. But the process of losing and the emotional adjustments that people make um, are life lessons. So there's so many of them that are really uh, invaluable. Well, right, and uh, as Kim was saying earlier, there's a lot of health benefits. We could add that to that list of benefits that you're mentioning so well, Ernestine. Um, Kim, uh, tell us a little bit. You moved towards development work around women's issues, environmental, political concerns. Um, How did this happen, and did you feel like you had time for any active lifestyle activity? You know, I've been, uh, I have been working in development, geez, now for, 25 years and always a thread of women's issues. So I worked at the Women's Foundation in California. Even the environmental grant makers had a women's funding component. And right now I'm at Mount St. Mary's in Los Angeles, which is the only women's university here in LA. It's very interesting because at all those different points um, in terms of my fundraising and development career, there wasn't much of an intersection with sports um, in terms of what we looked at as women's leadership. And one thing I'm seeing a trend in now, and especially in higher education, is this looking at women's leadership as a holistic approach. So it is, there's a health connection, there's a mind connection, there's a body connection. Um, and at Mount St. Mary's, we'd say there's a spiritual connection too, whether that means meditation or other, other spiritual practices. But this health and wellness um, and this focus on making sure that we can um, produce leaders who, um, I, Ernestine, Ernestine just said, who, you know, sports teaches folks to not get discouraged. And what we're trying to teach leaders is to be resilient. And I truly believe sports has a major um, role to play in creating resilient leaders. And I see that a lot in higher education funding. And even right here in Los Angeles, we're launching the first um, women's, young women's high school. And it's a STEM focus, and they still have a wellness focus at their school as well. So there's been a shift, I think, in terms of all the funding I've done for women over the past 25 years. Well, some of the people that have been on my program would like to feel like they had some contribution in that shift because it's kind of been a tough one, I would say, dealing with political leaders. Um, Tootie, you have had quite a set of experiences doing fundraising for the Women's Sports Foundation. So I'd like to ask you to tell us a lot about that. Now, I may have to break in partway through your story, but we'll pick it up on the other side of the break. So uh, tell us about how you got with the Women's Sports Foundation and what that, pro- what, what that was all about for your life. Sure. Thank you, Carol. And my career really at the Women's Sports Foundation started in, when I became a member. At, you all hopefully probably remember the Women's Sports and Fitness magazine. And in the 70s, the Women's Sports Foundation had an insert called the College Athletic Scholarship Guide. And that was my first exposure to learning that there was actually funding uh, for women to go to college. And I learned, obviously, a little bit about Title IX. So uh, I was a member. And I was in my 20s. I was working in healthcare. I had a master's in exercise science. I was coaching basketball. And I thought, you know, I really like to shift the paradigm of resources and attention going to women, especially when athletes have sort of 
frustrated with what was happening, and I interned uh, at the Women's Sports Foundation at age 30. I worked there and also had the privilege of working in London at the Women's Sports Foundation uh, offices there. And in 1994, I I started um, a career. I was hired by the by who I call the, the Mother Teresa of Gender Equity and Sport, Dr. Donna Lopiano, who I uh, had the privilege of working with her for 15 years. And we did pretty much every fundraising strategy, and you'll appreciate this, Kim, that there is, right? We did corporate <laughs> sponsorship, individual giving, events, major gifts, foundation funding, government funding, you name it. Um, and, you know, because this show is about resources, I, I was reflecting on what I thought was sort of our theme uh, that made us successful in, in all of those areas. Um, is I think each time, number one, we always focus on relationships. It was always about, you know, how could we listen and learn? How could we storytell for impact with them and, and, and build value together, uh, no matter who the person was across the table or beside us? And number two, I think we had, you know, a real, uh, as Ernestine said, we prepared to win. You know, we just came in prepared. We, we practiced, we presented, we had incredible attention to detail with everything we, we brought forth. And then third, we really had a winning game plan. We set goals and uh, we made sure everybody knew their roles and we cheered people on. Uh, you know, my favorite story is about visualizing. I used to go to bed at night and, you know, at the time when I first started, our a major gift was $500. Um, you know, when I left, we had an operating budget of about $6 million and obviously we had some million-dollar gifts in there. So I would visualize a check for a million dollars. I never knew who the signature was. And we had this wonderful, uh, I had this wonderful relationship. I got introduced to the vice chairman of Merrill Lynch, Lonnie Steffens. And, and I used to say to him all the time, how can we be your Dartmouth? Because I knew he was a big supporter of Dartmouth and he would give me ideas and I'd come back and tell him we had implemented them. And so I jokingly said to him when he asked me to get tickets for him for a New York Liberty game, at uh, courtside. And I said, you know, here's your tickets. And he said, well, what do I owe you? And I said, well, you know, these tickets, courtside. They're a quarter million each. You know, this is a big game. <laughs> you know, playing with him, as I always did, about big numbers. And uh, lo and behold, that night at dinner, when we were having dinner, he pledged a gift of a million dollars. And it was the first wow. time the organization had ever gotten that from an individual. And, uh, it, you know, of course, uh, him and everyone on the call who knows about getting those kind of gifts, it was you know, still to this day, I get goosebumps thinking about that moment. Yes, so, you know what, um, Tootie, I'm going to break in here. We're about to take our break, and I invite everyone who's listening to just image for the next two minutes a check for a million dollars. Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> um, we're going to take a short break now. Rejoin us on the long road up in a minute or two to learn about the resource-oriented projects our guests are into now. Welcome to the long road up. Change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. 
Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back to segment two, everyone. Um, Tootie, before we go on, I want to make sure that you got to finish your thought. Was there anything else you were going to tell us about your Women's Sports Foundation experiences? Well, the only thing I might add, Carol, and, and you could appreciate this, and, and as we get to watch all these amazing Olympians um, these next few days and their performances, you know, it's easy to fundraise when you have Dominique Dawes, Julie Foudy, mm-hmm. Billie Jean King, Donald Young, Don DeVarona, you know, we had Gina Davis. So I don't want to dismiss the value of the storytellers, um, and each of us has our own story to tell, which is compelling and real, um, but... You know, we do have a country sort of obsessed with achievement and, and celebrity. So it, it did make that work much easier than it is often. And Kim probably knows that working with Gina as well. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's something to be said for walking into a room saying, you know, Billie Jean King couldn't be here, but she wanted me to tell you this. So um, it does make uh, the conversation go easier, shall we say. Yes, I've always thought it was great how the Women's Sports Foundation uh, had a plan, and uh, Tuti, you were probably part of this, to start with young athletes before they hit stardom and celebrity and create that relationship kind of thing. And then each of those athletes in turn has given back as they achieved their goals. Uh, Kim, you're doing advancement work, as we mentioned, for Mount St. Mary's University now, and uh, I wonder if you could tell us what your life looks like now, and especially following the university's decision to launch a large-scale wellness initiative. I think I need to start visualizing like Tootie, actually. <laughs> <laughs> a million-dollar check. I can't get it out of my mind. I mean, that is a... Uh, that story is a life... You know, that's a once-in-a-lifetime story, Um for for someone like me, for sure. And I, can I echo for one second that that celebrity connection is key or that prominence connection. I, I wonder if, and I think about that with men's sports. Um, they, they have many men to choose from, and especially here in Southern California, USC and UCLA, I think that, that those men, those alums, uh, help with the fundraising a lot, which is very interesting. So I am at Mount St. Mary's right now, and we are launching a wellness movement, which I'm, which I'm really excited about, and our entire community is excited about. And one piece of that 
wellness movement will be a new facility that's truly an educational facility, but a fitness facility as well. Right now, I think all of you would be so disappointed that we have a couple of treadmills and a, a little studio space for, you know, 3,000 students here. We have 18 undergra- uh, 1,800 undergrads. It's been a very interesting educational process launching this movement and trying to raise funds for something that's considered not academic. And our alum base in particular, um, 60% of our graduates, by the way, go into the health and wellness field, whether they're nurses, doctors, social workers, um, physical therapists. So we feel that we have a responsibility to graduate not only future leaders, but healthy future leaders who could be healthy role models. And our process of raising, and knock on wood, we're doing very well, um, we've raised almost $50 million over the last several years towards a working goal of about $85 million. So we're in great shape. But it's been a, what I'm calling an education process, not only for, and for women who have played sports um, in, our, you know, in our alum base. It's letting them know, again, this learning connection between health and wellness, between sports and leadership. And sports is one component. It's a larger movement for education and healthy eating and balanced lifestyle. But the sports is going to be a key part for us. And we launched a couple of club, club sports teams over the last couple of years, and they have been doing so well. People, I mean, we had more people trying out than we could have ever imagined. We have students telling stories about leadership and losing weight and, and working out challenges and problems with their team members in a way that will help them in, a, in their careers and in their lives. So it's been, it's been very interesting and very different than anything Mount St. Mary's has seen because it's typically academic funding. Um, I have a little bit of insight into the campaign that Kim is talking about. And um, Mount St. Mary's University, one of their campuses, is nestled up in the hills uh, above um, the Getty Center um, in that part of Southern California. And so their, their, one of their taglines is, strong women move mountains. I just love that. <laughs> I just love that. Um, Ernestine, let's go to you. Um, along your way, you and colleagues determined that many, many, many more women needed to become involved in the business of sport. So you and colleagues worked together to create an organization that would um, move towards that end. So tell us, uh, tell all our listeners about WISE, Women in Sport Eventing. What is it and why does it exist and, and how does it work? Well, I'd be delighted to, Carol. Thank you. Um WISE is, as you said, stands for Women in Sports and Events. And I think of the things I have done in my life, this is one of the things I am most proud of. Almost 24 years ago, and if you think the industry now is, is a hard break-in for women at any stage, um, think back 24 years when women who wanted a job in the field of sport uh, tried to break in. So 24 years ago, a small group of us, of women that worked in New York City, um, got together over breakfast. We went around the room. We introduced each other. Some people knew each other. Others didn't. It was an unbelievable meeting because we recognized the importance of this organization. And I'll never forget leaving that breakfast. It was held in a restaurant on Central Park South, and I was walking to the subway, and I was thinking, this has got to work. 23 years since, WISE is the 
leading voice and resource for professional women in the business of sport. We have 12 chapters around the United States. We have a wise executive leadership institute that is at Dartmouth College held one week every fall for women in mid-careers who are really on the executive path. We have amazing mentoring programs, and that, to me, in many ways, is essential for career women. It is getting the guidance, getting the advice, having people to go to in a crisis, having, if you have a crisis in the workplace, we have been able to make WISE work, and that is our website, wiseworks.org. We have an annual awards luncheon every June that is held in the Marriott that we honor three women every year. There's a ballot that goes out to our entire membership with a criteria for the award, the ballot, and this is the good news. We, we narrow down the ballot now to about 12 women, but the great news is there are so many more qualified women to go on the ballot, and the hardest part is making a balanced ballot, women working in different areas of the, of the sports businesses. So 20, almost 24 years now, WISE is on its way. We have, I think, a great foundation we have a national board that's based in New York City. We have amazing leadership around the country with the different chapters. We are a not-for-profit, and we are all volunteer. So to say we've achieved what we've achieved in the period of time that we have been uh, established is something to be very proud of. We are hoping to open more chapters in the upcoming year. So for any stage of a career, whether it's entry-level or senior executives, there's an organization for women in the business of sport. And I urge your listeners, if they're interested in finding out more, all about the mentoring programs, the membership opportunities, go to wiseworks.org. Ernestine, you know, I spent a a good part of my life uh, in academics, settings. And so when I think about women in athletic business oriented work, I think about the peop- the women that are in administration for athletic departments and so on. But in the business world, where where just give some examples of what kind of positions women who are a part of the wise organization, what what are where are they in the organizational um, aspect of sport? Carol, you know, it's one of the things that I really want to make sure I say is Careers in sports are, are something that I think young women now that have far more opportunities on the playing field aspire to when their competitive days in college in particular are, are over. And at every area of business, whether it's the leagues, Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, National Football League, um, Major League Soccer, whatever it is in sports marketing, in, in small startup companies that work in sports events, there is such a wide range, and all of these businesses have women. And the, as I said before, the good news is women are making inroads. There are women now who started at entry level, who got out of college, who were able to get a job in the sports industry, and who stuck with it. And I think that's the, really the key. You stick with it. And as I tell young women that I mentor, 
not every day is a great day. You're not going to be working all the time in an environment with people that you think the world of or you have a great compatibility with, but you stick with it. And I can tell you um, I have watched some wonderful, wonderful women advance in their field, are in now leadership and executive positions, senior-level executives who have thriving careers in the sports industry. It is still a very male-dominated industry, but it is really with real encouragement that women are able now to have jobs that are fulfilling to them at all stages of their career. Thanks, Ernestine. Um, Judy, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to be able to get that million-dollar check out of my mind for a while now. Um, you, uh, It must have been difficult, but at a certain point, you left the Women's Sports Foundation and created your own consulting firm. So uh, take us on a trip now so that we can, in quotes, imagine philanthropy. Well, first I have to just nod to Ernestine. I. I, I'm so honored that you were there at the beginning of WISE and you made that happen because networks are really what women need, in, in my opinion. And, and a network um, called the Women's Funding Network invited me to be on their board, um, gosh, in the early 2000s. And I started learning about the women's rights space, and I realized I could play a role. And women's funds, as, as Kim knows from California Women's Foundation, um, you know, they're mobilizing women to become philanthropists and they're mobilizing dollars for good women's um, causes and women's rights issues. So I feel, felt like I could be a bridge builder between women's sports, women's rights, and women's philanthropy. And that was a, that was a unique role that I could play uh, based on my, my lived experiences. And so, you know, imagining philanthropy really came out of me serving on the board of the Women's Funding Network where we were incubating the Women Moving Millions project there. Uh, which was uh, a concept of women making million-dollar gifts to women's rights and women's funds groups. So I was part of um, that sort of gestation conversation and then was asked to create some cohorts and workshops and trainings for people who wanted to know uh, more deeply about how to create an organization that could uh, seek and recruit and obtain a million-dollar gift. So that's how my company really started. It was out of a need for me to step into a place that I felt I could really add value. And and from there, I've really gotten the privilege for for eight years now. I've been coaching leaders and teams uh, through campaigns, culture change, growth. Um, We do workshops on value-based giving, you know, uh, building empowered teams and leaders, strategic planning, all that good stuff. And, you know, we really imagine... That's why I use the word imagine, because now you know part of the story, right? So we have to imagine what we want to create in the world um, and hopefully have our work be more impactful, more meaningful, and more fun. And, you know, everything we do, we, you know, try and celebrate and build on the passion and purpose and power of women and also sort of bring a gender lens to philanthropy. And uh, I've had, you know, just it's just been such a fun ride uh, working with the people I've got to work with. And so just a, a highlight in terms of bridging those three areas at the Women Deliver Conference, which is, you know, 5,000 people gathering in the women's rights space. For the first time this year, uh, Women Win, which is an organization I'm on the board of, which is really doing some great uh, global rights work in women's sports, uh, Women Win presented with others on a sports panel. So that's, you know, 
it's a long time coming, but slowly but surely there's a lot of merging happening in those uh, three arenas. Yes, I, I've been really pleased to see um, at, at the uh, Olympics in Rio, UN Women, which is a segment of the United Nations organization, has partnered with Women Win, and uh, they've done, they did a project in the year or so leading up to the games uh, for girls in some of the underdeveloped areas of Rio, and then so they're doing a kind of like a celebrity panel during the games. Um, so th- it kind of tags in also to what Kim was saying about how um, the women's rights and uh, political area is beginning to embrace um, the idea of women and sports women uh, as as real contributing factors in leadership. You know, I think this. I, I'm. I'd like to ask you each. We have just a couple of minutes before our break. Um, I have a sense that this was always in the minds of men, um, but it was so accepted. It was so ingrained in the minds of men that the role of sport as building the male leader. N- nobody talked about it because it was just there, but. Now I think we're beginning to see that women f- might fill uh, a similar space. Any thoughts on that, anybody? I absolutely. I, I, gosh, I wish I had this statistic that, you know, you look at women CEOs of companies. They may not, they're not playing sports right now, but the vast majority of them have played team sports at some time in their life. And I think those qualities that a, a male leader has or what's maybe brought him to that level are absolutely um, applicable to women. And we're seeing that more and more as women have evolved in more sports, had more sports opportunities. I think it's so fantastic to hear that more women are at the table in organized sports, both for men and women, too, because that will shift, that will shift the whole way we think. Absolutely. Okay, no, really uh, it's time like for our last break, study, folks. Uh, be sure to rejoin us as we look at gaining resources for women's sport initiatives in the future. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. On virtually each of the nine previous programs, our guests have explained how crucial and how difficult it was to obtain resources for young athletes and their families, for professional teams, for communities, and even developing countries that are trying to give more opportunities to build sport experiences for girls and women. So I want to use this last segment for questions such as uh, any special challenges that females have in obtaining resources for their sport and why this might be, and most importantly, how do we meet the challenges and overcome the obstacles? So I'm going to ask each of the three of you to answer um, these questions. If you don't mind, in turn, let's go Tootie, Kim, and Ernestine. Um, what do you think about the idea of special difficulties and challenges, um, as you and others observe, trying to obtain resources for girls and women's sports program? Tootie, could you go first? Sure, Carol. I mean, you know, let's just acknowledge first and, you know, a nod to, to Hillary Clinton, Madam President, I hope, uh, that we live in a sexist culture, right, that has antiquated gender norms. Like, we have to say that right up front, and it has, you know, deep roots that focus on women as, you know, sexualized objects or objects of, you know, appearance is their only uh, value. Even recently in the Olympians, I think there was a whole spread of, you know, sort of the beautiful Olympians. The, rather, you know, let's do that for the men as well, right? So, anyway, don't I'm getting fired up already. So, <laughs> we to, you know, we have to just acknowledge that first. So we're constantly trying to make the case for women, right? So Catalyst data has been out there for 20 years that, that shows that women who are more women in C-suite and on boards, the company uh, performs better for their shareholders, right? Greater return on investment, um, yet... You know, we know that women are only 16% of Fortune 500 board members and 4% of CEOs. So, so we, you know, even though the data is out there, we haven't been able to move the dial. So, and especially in sports. So I'm, I'm sort of advocating this new model of thinking about it, which is much more of an activist model, um, where we would challenge the paradigm around economic security. And we would challenge that sports gives uh, girls, a diff- in addition to all the great tools it gives boys, which uh, boys are sort of culturalized and socialized immediately to be in sports, girls, we, we have to sort of make it like a mandatory curriculum. We have to sort of instill upon people that if we want girls to have the confidence uh, to take the action that they need to take to be part of the leaders in our society, if we want an economically secure uh, culture and society, that we need, that this is required. And uh, we used to have donors who would say that to their daughters, that you, you, have to, you have to take math, you have to take science, and you actually you have to do a sport. So pick which sport you're going to do. I mean, obviously, they had resources, and that wasn't the issue for them, but it was more just they, they knew the value inherently. Um, you know, we know that girls who play sports are 20 more, 20% more likely to be in the workforce, and they actually have an 8% higher wage premium. So, and they're 80% more likely to be a senior VP or higher in corporate America. So... There's all this data, and, it's, and so here we are living in a culture that's challenged with the leadership models and, 
and could, could, could benefit from having women in leadership at all levels, uh, in all sectors, yet we are um, inhibited or somehow disturbed by the idea of big, bold, strong, brash women. Um, and the Olympics, that's what I love about the Olympics, especially track and field and boxing and rugby and basketball. You have all these women taking up space and being large and bold and yelling help to each other and, you know, all these wonderful things that we wish every daughter uh, and niece and um, young girl could learn, right? So I think we have to really start using our voices and being act- activists, uh, shareholders and stakeholders and using, you know, our purse and looking at the buy-up app that's out there and deciding what consumer choices we make based on how they treat women and looking at Fairy God Boss, which is a great website, looking at maternal leave and, and advocating for maternal leave. These are things that you might not think affect women's sports, but if we en masse look at and take action against, um, you know, places and spaces where women are inhibited and held back, you know, it will trickle down. And we have to all, you know, amplify our voices uh, and celebrate each other's successes wherever possible and join together and join together. You know, this sort of model of fundraising, of competition, you know, I'm not a fan of. Um, that was really the privilege of working with Donna and Marge and all the good leaders at the Women's Sports Foundation. We were, we were all about sharing. We were all about how can we do this together? How can we create a campaign, save Title IX, when we bring everybody to the table how can we, you know, play well together? So those are just my initial thoughts, and you can tell I could go on and on for hours about this stuff. <laughs> uh, Kim, I think you brought up something that has a lot of uh, resonance for people in the academic communities when you said that you were running into some uh, initial difficulties in your campaign because there was some view that maybe this wellness um, active lifestyle sports thing was quote not educational. I, I think there's a long history for that. So what what are you seeing in relation to the special difficulties and challenges that you have in getting the resources for your wellness program with this um, trying to make it uh, appreciated by that uh, set of academicians that might have sort of a narrower view of what belongs in a university. Um. First, I want to say, Tootie, I'm right with you on all of those comments, uh, so fantastic. I do want to say that if we think of all philanthropic dollars spent um, in our country, really only seven, roughly 7% are geared towards women and girls out of all the, all the money being spent by foundations in particular. So it's very interesting, and I think that harkens back to what Tootie is saying about just inherent sexism in our country that then trickles down to every single aspect, including philanthropy. For us in particular, we are not fighting that academic program piece anymore. I think we felt trepidation initially. What we're saying now is looking at the data that sports and health and wellness are developing leadership tools and skills. This is a very important facet of an education. And we also serve traditionally underserved communities. 50% of our students are the first in their family to attend college. And uh, we're one of the most diverse universities in the nation. And Tudy was saying that, you know, there's, she was giving an example of a donor who said, what sport are you going to do? A lot of women from underserved communities are, don't even have access to these sports programs in their communities before they come here. 
So I feel like in terms of higher education, we have a critical role to play in trying to catch young women in particular at a time where they still can change their habits, they still maybe are interested in taking a risk, can learn through sports, and we really feel a clarion call to do that as a women's university. So it's an education process for us. It's an education process within our own internal academic community and with our donors and our larger community. Um, Ernestine, how about you on this topic? Um, your sense about any special difficulties for uh, funding for girls and women's programs that are that are sort of stacked on top of what uh, are difficulties for everyone in trying to raise money in this environment? Well. First of all, I think the word network, Judy, you used it, and it's so good to say hello to you, Judy. I've not uh, been in touch with you quite for a few years, but I remember attending several of your events when you were with the Women's Sports Foundation. And one of the things I want to just pick up on for a second is you talked about relationships, and it's essential. These relationships and the networking that you do within a small group of people, it doesn't have to be a wide net, but the right people are the really the key. And one of the things that I think in terms of the leadership is a person's style. And that's where I say to you, my hat off to you, Tootie, because it was your personal style that attracted so many people to the events. You built relationships you still do, and I think all of us have. I, I say to you, Carol, who is, to me, one of the most admirable people in the whole world for your unselfish work that you do internationally for opportunity for girls and women in so many different countries, and in particular the work you've done in, in the United States way before anybody was doing anything. So, Carol Oglesby, you are one of my true heroes. But I'm getting back on topic. I will not get off topic. One of the things... I think is essential, is the grassroots effort. If a woman played sport, if her children played sports, if she has children, if she has a close family, uh, friend, a close relative, whoever it is, a father, a mother, it doesn't really matter. Money is there. It doesn't have to be a million dollars. But small, as we have learned in recent campaigns, by, and it was brought to so many people's attention, how small amounts add up. And it's knowing how to, and whom to make the ask. And making the ask is one of the things I think women have a little bit harder uh, a time doing sometimes. It's making the ask, knowing how to make the ask, and whom to make the ask, and for what. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a narrow area. It could be in a broader area, and it can be if just alerting them to the fact that their contributions do a world of good. And so much of this gives back. The money is there because the women who played sport who went on to the workforce, now fortunately many of them have resources to contribute. And sometimes they don't know that they, you want their contribution. So it's identifying who these people could be. It's knowing how to approach them. Sometimes that's where your network is crucial. A network can make an introduction. And that, to me, is something that can open many doors. So building a network, knowing how to ask, knowing whom to ask, and never giving up, I think, is really the kind of motto I I like to think of as we all go forward in our individual careers. But I think right now we have a little network right on this telephone line, (laughs) and it all helps. We all help each other. It's the women helping women 
and it's not just limiting it to women, but it's sometimes that network that understands immediately um, what to do and whom to connect you with. Okay, I want to ask a little bit different question here. Fits in the framework, I think, but um, there might be listeners um, who are thinking that they'd really like to do something like the kind of work that each of the three of you are involved in. So I wonder if you could just uh, take a minute or two, each of you, and talk about what kind of an educational background or life experiences do you recommend for a woman who wants to do um, either development or um, advancement or philanthropy work uh, in that in that space. Um, what's a good What's a good college major? What's a good background? It'll have to be brief now, but uh, please, each of you, chime in on that. Well, well, I'll start. Um, Carol, and Ernestine, thank you for being so eloquent. I feel the same way about all of you on the call, and I'm I'm honored to do it, and I hope we get to do it again. Um, So, yeah, now there's actual degree programs in nonprofit management, which, you know, wasn't happening when I was in the field. So, you know, you can get a degree in undergrad or graduate. You can get certificates in nonprofit management, which obviously includes fundraising. There are There is a certification you can get as a fundraising executive. I would recommend, you know, serving on a board if you can. Um, and then you can learn a lot about an organization from that side. And, of course, being a donor yourself um, helps you learn the experience of what it's like to give. And, you know, then you can get excited and hopefully meet people who are part of an organization. Um, and volunteering at events and volunteering any way you can. But finding a place that shares your values um, is important, in my opinion. Otherwise, it's not going to be as fun. Uh, Kim, anything to add on that? I would ditto all of that and say, you know, every development team I've worked on has people who have varied experiences. Um, You know, even people who've come from sales or marketing can come because it is really someone who just really enjoys talking to people and can display the passion that they have for um, the nonprofit or the organization they're working for. I think the passion's really key. Yeah, there's a there's a good buzzword. I will piggyback on that. I do think passion's the key. I think volunteering also. There's various forms of philanthropy. Of course, we're all thinking of the the value of a. a financial donation, but time is also, Mm. giving your time is a type of philanthropy, and anybody in college, there's so many worthwhile organizations, you just pick an organization that appeals to you, that has a program that you'd like to get involved with, giving your time sometimes is one of the greatest things you can do for that organization, and the giving back that they give to you through the experience you gain and through the connections you make. It's a two-way street. Right on, right on. Uh, A big thank you to our guests today. Next week, we're getting to hear from three people who've dedicated a good portion of their lives um, in the work for human rights in sports. So join us again next week for Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week.